All right, good morning, everybody. Have a seat, please. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Psalms. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series this morning in uh, Psalms and the Cross. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 96. And um, so last week, um, <clears throat> if you remember, we looked at uh, God's law. And we actually put a definition to the word law of what the Bible means when it, when it talks about God's law, um, and that being God's instruction, that God's law um, is really God's instructions for us. And we talked about how there's two different ways uh, to view God's instruction, and, and one of that is that we can view it actually the kind of the way that we view um, our, our state and federal laws, and that is a list of don'ts or else. Um, or we can rightly view it in the way that uh, God intended and the writers of Scripture intended, that we view it as God's good instruction for our lives. Um, and so there are two ways that we can respond to God's instructions, and that's what we're going to spend our next two weeks looking at, simply the right way and the wrong way. Um, there are two ways. So either we can listen and, um, if you will, build the playset properly with no leftover parts, with each piece where it belongs. Um, or we can rebel and go our own way, claiming to know better, and have a pile of leftover parts. Uh, our family loves the show Duck Dynasty. Our kids beg to watch Duck Dynasty. And there's an episode where all the granddaughters are over at, uh, at, at, at the grandparents, Phil and Kay's house, and the grandma buys him a playhouse, and she wants Phil, the grandfather, to put it together. And he doesn't like instructions, so he goes his own way. He takes it outside, and he builds this duck blind, if you will, is what it turns into, uh, out of this kid's playroom. And the girls look at it, and they're like, or, excuse me, out of the kid's toy set. And the girls look at it, these little girls, right, three or four years old, they look at it like, that's not right. Uh, and he goes, well, just get in there and play. And so they get in and play, and, the, and their complaint is there was no window up top. He built this two-story thing, and so... What does he do as a good grandfather? Does he take it apart, follow the instructions, put it together properly? Or does he go over to the corner and get his chainsaw out and cut a hole? That's what he did. He cut a hole in it, right? And then they, they were happy. Um, but the reality is, is, is there are two ways to respond. And this morning, I want us from Psalms 96 to learn and to look at the right way to respond to God's instruction. There is a right way to respond to God's instruction, God's good instruction for our lives. And here's the lie this morning that we're going to be combating. Here's the lie that, that every one of us tend to believe. And this is the lie that we want to believe is true. It's that I can respond to God and his instructions in any way that I choose and still be okay. Right? We want to self-govern. We want to, we want to be self-sovereign. And we want the ability to decide what is right and what God should accept or what should be right by God. And we see that every time we turn on the news, every time we open a magazine, every time we turn on the radio, that our society is one of this, this what you say is right doesn't necessarily mean it's right or what God says is right doesn't make it right. I want to decide what is right. How many of us have ever heard the term what's right for you might not be right for me? And that's just this lie that we believe that there is that it is okay for us to decide how we're going to live and how we're going to respond to God's instructions. 
But here's the truth that I hope to, to bring to light this morning from Psalm 96, is this, that God has prescribed a way that is right for us to respond to His instructions so that we can forever be in His presence and blessing. There's a right way that man is to respond to God's instructions. And it is only in that right response that allows us to remain under God's hand of blessing and in His presence eternally. So let's read Psalm 96. The, uh, if you don't have a Bible, the, the verses will be on the screen for you. We'll read Psalm 96. I'll pray and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of walk through this chapter this morning. But King David, the psalmist, he writes this. He says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, and all that fills it, let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. God, I pray this morning that You would uh, help our hearts to believe that your instructions are good. God, that your instructions are not meant to um, take away goodness and pleasure and fulfillment and happiness and joy. But God, your instructions are actually parameters set upon us so that we can have the utmost joy, fulfillment, blessing, and happiness. Help our hearts to believe. I pray, God, that through Psalm 96 this morning, God, that your spirit would Um, make the truth of who you are and what you've done known. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen. Amen. So one of the things that we see in Psalm 96 um, is, is, is what is kind of reinforced what we talked about last week, and that is that creation itself proclaims that God exists. Creation says that God is real. Anything that we see, we look at these chairs And we see, well, somebody had to have made the chairs. Chairs didn't just exist. And Scripture, one of Scripture's main arguments to the existence of God is creation. Think about the intricacy of the human body, the way it works, the way the mind works and sends messages and reacts with the rest of the body and instructs the rest of the body. Or think about the intricacies of a clock. And how we're to believe that that just somehow out of nowhere just became into existence on its own. That out of nothing became a human body. Or out of nothing came an animal. But scripture uses creation to reinforce the fact that there is in fact a creator. 
And not only does creation tell us that there is a creator, but creation sings the praises of the creator. Look at what he says here in verse 11 again. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. And you think of a roaring sea. Do you ever think of the roaring of the sea as the sea giving praise and glory to God? See, there is something unique about the roaring of the sea that teaches us and, and, and points us to something about God. And then he goes on and he says, let everything that's in the field, let it, be, um, let it exalt and everything in it. He says, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Do you think that trees really sing? They really talk? No. But when the wind, you guys that go camping with us up in the mountains where the tall redwood trees if, if we get the kids to be quiet enough, we can hear the wind whistling through these trees. And it's a sound that is unique to redwood trees because of the design of them and the way the branches and the leaves fall. It's a different sound when wind rushes through redwood trees as it does through other types of trees. But all of those noises are unique noises that, that make the trees, or it's, it's as if the trees sing of the joys of God. And since creation responds this way, and since I propose to you that there is a right way for us to respond to God's law, His instructions, so that we could ever be in His presence, it would be good for us to know what the right way is, right? Here's, here's a sad truth. Do you realize that there are lots of people all over the world gathering on Sunday mornings, typically, some on Saturdays, believing and espousing that what they're, they're doing is right? What they're doing is right because it's pleasing to God. And they, they make a claim that what is happening in their worship is pleasing to God. And these, these claims come from, obviously, different, different sources different beliefs, different religions. Some of them, sadly, people have taken Scripture uh, out of context and very wrongly and, and do practices and they have traditions that are not pleasing to God. And so, because it is so easy for us, John Calvin said that the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And what that means is that if an idol of our heart is crushed, then our heart is quick to rise up and begin to worship another idol. And if that is true, as I do believe it is true, and I think that society, and if we're honest with ourselves, I think our own, art, our own heart proves that that is true, then we need to know what the right way is to respond to God's instructions. What is right and pleasing? And I think in a word, we see this in chapter 96, verse 9. In one word, the right response to God's instruction is Worship. Psalm 96, 9 says, Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. So the right response to God's instruction is worship. So then that begs the question, what is worship? Because if we look at what the common meaning of worship is, then worship is simply limited to singing of songs while music is being played. But that's not the biblical meaning or definition of worship. So here's what we mean when we say worship and what Scripture means. Worship is the ongoing act 
of giving oneself to God in light of who He is and what He has done as it's been revealed to us in Scripture. It is the ongoing act. You see, worship, we are not called to respond to God's instructions one time and one time only. We don't at one time decide to follow God's instructions in a certain situation, and then we are thereby okay for all of eternity. But we are called to constantly respond to God's instructions. We're constantly called to obey God's instructions and to worship God and to give our hearts and our lives to Him. So worship is the ongoing act of giving oneself to God in light of who He is and what He has done as revealed to us in the Bible. You see, worship isn't defined as what we do to please God. Worship is not defined as what we do to get God's attention. Worship is a response to God and who He is, what He has done. And in turn, what that makes us and how we are to live. And so we are to worship God ongoing. And that's what we see. That's why creation is such a powerful picture of worship. Does the wind going through the trees of the redwoods ever reflect or worship anything other than God? Never. Never. It never speaks to anything outside of God's creation and His glory. And so too, like the roaring of the sea. Or the beauty, as Jesus talks about in in Matthew, where He talks about the beauty of the sparrows and how how beautiful they are and how God, Jesus even says that Solomon in all of his splendor and all of his kingdom and all of his majesty was never clothed as beautiful as the lilies of the field. And how God knows that not a sparrow falls to the ground in death without him knowing it because God provides for the very needs of the sparrow. So how much more are you and I in the image of God? Image bearers. We're created in God's image. Are we precious to God? And are we to worship him? the way that the lilies of the field speak to the splendor and the beauty of God. So why then is worship man's right response? I want to take time. I want to walk through basically two things with us this morning from Psalm 96. And the first one is this. Why is worship man's right response? Why is the act of constantly... Um, continuously, let's use that word, why is the act of continuously giving yourself to God in light of who He is and what He has done, why is that the right response to God's instructions? Well, the first thing I would say is because God saves. Look at verse 2. He says, Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. Let's think about David's life for a moment. David was the author of this psalm. Let's think about King David's life. David is the one that wrote this. And now remember, all of psalms are technically songs. That's what the word psalm means, songs, right? Songs accompanied by a musical instrument. So this is a song that David wrote. Think about the rich experience in history that David alone had with God. Think of the things that God had delivered David from. That's what the word salvation means. It means to be delivered from. I mean, there are the small things from when David was a child tending sheep and he was delivered from the bear that he killed and the lion that he killed. Much more more importantly, though, think about David's experience with Goliath. 
how God had delivered victory through that stone to God's people against Goliath and the Philistines. See, David had a rich experience of God's faithfulness to save and deliver. Think about after after Goliath, how David grew in the stature of the Israelites, and they loved him, and they began to sing songs about how great he was, and they compared him to Saul, and they said that Saul had slayed his thousands, but David had slayed his what? His ten thousands. So then that starts this, this course in David's life where he actually has to run from his life from the king of Israel. The very man whom he honored and he respected as the king of Israel, as the king of God's people. The very throne that David knew he was going to inherit because God had already spoken and said, you will proceed Saul. And so what most of us would have done is we would have taken God's word that we're going to be king and we would have acted on it and we would have become king by one way or the other. And David had opportunity to take Saul's life. David had numerous opportunities to, with the sword to physically take Saul's life and assume the throne that God had given him. But he didn't. He submitted himself. David lived as a madman in the mountains, hiding in caves as Saul and his army pursued him. Scripture tell of a time where David snuck up on Saul while Saul was going to the bathroom, right? He was urinating. He was standing in a corner going to the bathroom, and Saul takes out his knife, and he cuts off the edge of Saul's robe. Saul never knows it until he's back out of the cave, and David's standing up from atop of the mountain, and he says, hey, Saul, see this? I could have just killed you, but he didn't. And even in that act of disrespect by cutting his robe, David repented and said that he was wrong. But David had a vast experience to draw on, to know that God saves. And that is why David worshipped him. Now, for you and I today, we're not running from King Saul and hiding in caves. But here's the reality, is we have all kinds of false gospels around us to believe. Right? What, are we, what do we believe that saves? One of the things that God has been showing me uh, personally in this area is that... Uh, is how much I believe the bed saves. And what I mean by this is this. What I mean by that is this. Anytime one of the kids is cranky or disobedient, I tell them, go to your bed. I want, I want peace restored. I want my comfort back. Whenever there's situations going on in life that I don't want to spend the energy to think about or I don't want to do the, the right thing and, 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 and solve it or talk about it, I escape to bed. I'm just going to bed because when I'm asleep, it's gone. It's away. Right? And in a very real sense, that is simply me declaring what I'm finding salvation in. What is going to deliver me from this problem? What is going to deliver me from the disobedience of my kids? I don't look to God. I don't call my kids to run to God. I tell them to run to their bed and close their door so I can't hear it as much. Right? I run to my bed. Close the door. Go to sleep. But we have all types of false gospels that are presented to us every day that we are called to believe, that the world tries to get us to believe. In the midst of struggle and trial in your life, what do you run to for deliverance? What do you, what do you run to that is going to save? 
Some of the, the main things in our society are obviously drugs and alcohol. People run to that. People run to sex. People run to pornography. Some people run to shopping, right? Some people run to gossip. What's going to save me from this is telling everybody my side of the story in a way that makes sure that I come out right. And in that moment, that's what we're believing is going to save us. The way you view me is going to save me. It's going to deliver me from this. The high I get from this addiction or from this indulgence is going to save me from the pain. But King David knew that God alone delivered. And that is why we are called to worship him. And that is why worshiping God is the right response. Now, the second thing that we see here is in verse 3, is that God does marvelous things. Verse 3 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. You see, one of the amazing things about Christianity is the rich history that we have to draw on and remember. Think of the Red Sea. God parting the Red Sea and allowing his people to pass. Everybody loves an underdog story. King David and Goliath is the ultimate underdog story, right? God's creation, his marvelous work. But for those in here that are saved, that God has has touched our hearts and, and we've been born again, the marvelous works that we have to draw on are also personal. We can look back and we can see the misery that we used to call life. The struggle that we used to call our own hearts. The bitterness, the rage, the anger, the insecurity, the fear. And although we might not be fully through those things yet, we can see how God has began to change those in our hearts. And and they don't define us the way that they used to. Think about the way that God saves. That alone is marvelous. Think about how in Christianity, it's the only, it's the only um, worldview that approaches the heart of things and not just the behaviors of things. It's not just why do we worship, or it's not just that we worship idol, uh, idols and the very idols that we worship, but why do we worship those idols? Our hearts being transformed, our hearts Our our souls that were dead, being made alive, is in itself a marvelous thing. The fact that the God of the universe that reigns and has trees singing his praise and oceans roaring his glory, the fact that he came to earth to be like us so that we could be reconciled to him is a marvelous work. It is a work that no other God will do on your behalf. In fact, other gods, false gospels, will call you to do marvelous works on their behalf. But the God of Christianity does marvelous works on behalf of his people. The third reason that worship is the right response is because God is to be feared. Look at verse 4. Like, we don't like talking about this aspect of God, but it's a very real thing. And not only is it real, but when we read the Psalms... It is something that we see that the psalm, that the writers of the psalms, they delighted in. They found it as a good thing, not something to hide and say, well, we don't want to talk about this part of Christianity. We're just going to talk about the good stuff. But, but they delighted in it. Look at 
excuse me, look at verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. You see how David exalts the idea that we're supposed to fear God? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. These are the words of Jesus. Fear those, or he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. (laughs) Fear is real. Why do you think horror movies and dramas are so successful at the box office? Because it draws upon this very real emotion that we are supposed to have. This very real sense that we were meant to experience. But what it does is it, is it just kind of temporarily fulfills it. Temporarily fulfills it. It's not an eternal satisfaction. And it's not a satisfaction that leads to eternal life. But Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, he doesn't say don't fear. Fear God. Fear the one who has the power to send you to hell. God is to be feared and therefore we should worship him. We should worship him. And in a moment we're going to see how David calls on... There's a few times in this psalm that David talks about God judging. But David rests in the fact that God is a righteous judge who judges righteously. And that's why we can, ex- we can, we can exalt and, and glorify God and fear Him in a healthy way because we know that we will be counted among the righteous. Not because we have lived righteously, but because we have worshipped God, the one who was our righteousness. Fear Him. And then again, of course, I've already mentioned, spoke on this a little bit, but the fourth reason that worship is the right uh, response is because God is the creator. Look at verse 5. He says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. That word worthless means of not. It's good for nothing. It can also have a, have a, a root source in divination. And so there is this, listen, listen, here is the thing, especially parents of young kids, this is why we have to be so careful with the things we allow our kids to partake in and watch and plan. And one of the things that we have to be especially careful is, is, is magic. And here is why. Everything that a false god offers is a knockoff of what the one true living god offers. Magic is a very real manifestation of that. Magic is real. Don't tell your kids it's not real. It's real. How else did... Uh, Pharaoh's uh, wise guys cast down their, their staffs and turn them into snakes just like Noah did. It's real. But it is a knockoff for the power and the authenticity of God's power to create. And this is what David compares in verse 5. Look at the second half of verse 5. He says, But the Lord made the heavens. So in this verse, it's the only verse in this chapter where David compares God's creation with that of false gods. He does it to contrast it, to show how much more spectacular and natural God's creation is. And how he says that false gods are worthless, meaning they're not worthy. They're of no good. They've got no substance to them. But then he compares it to God's creation. And from that, we, we draw that God's creation 
does have worth. It is real. There is splendor in it. And because of that, we should worship God. False idols, false gods, idolatry, no matter what form it takes, whether it takes the form of a spouse, whether it takes the form of another religion, if it takes the form of our children, if it takes the form of an addiction or a substance, are all copycats. They're all trying to offer what our hearts long for. You see, our hearts naturally long to be accepted. Our hearts naturally long for security. Our hearts naturally long for comfort and power. And that's good stuff. That's what God put. See, God gave us those longings so that we would seek after him, not so that we would fill them with temporary copycats. Now, if worship is man's right response to God, then the next logical step we have to take together this morning is how are we to rightly worship God? Does anything go? Does anything go? Like, is it cool if John brings in a bag of rattlesnakes and we all hold them and say that this is worship, right? And, and, and we determine our faith based on who does and who doesn't get bit. Well, I guarantee you I'm not getting bit. <laughs> and because I'm holding them. But I guarantee you I'm not getting bit. <laughs> Therefore, I have more faith than all of you. No, not anything goes. In fact, this, this psalm also now goes on, and not only does it call us to worship, and not only does it instruct us that worship is the right response to God's instruction, but it also tells us how we are to worship Him. Verses 7 and 8. Number one, the first way that we are to worship Him is by we're to ascribe. Verse 7 and 8 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name, bringing an offering and coming to His courts. The word ascribe means to suggest by infer, inferring or conjuring of cause, quality, or most notably, authorship. We ascribe to God the authorship that is due His name. You see, worshiping God is ascribing to Him authorship. Authorship of creation. Authorship of salvation. If you study James, as I know a lot of our men's and women's groups are studying right now, just happened that way, God's sovereignty. But if you study James, you're going to see that we are called also to ascribe suffering and try to God as well. And not in a, oh, that's because he's punishing evil people, but it's, he's bringing it about in us to purge our hearts of idolatry and sinfulness and to shape in us more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are to attribute glory and strength to God, that God is the author of strength. We're to worship and attribute or ascribe to God that, that His holiness has been made known. God's holy, remember the word holy means set apart. It's different. That's what holy means. Holy is a state of being. It is not an act of doing. To live holy is simply to live according to your, your being made holy by God. To live holy is you don't do what is right with the hopes of becoming holy. You are holy. 
God has made you holy in Christ. Therefore, you're to live a holy life. The second way that we are to rightly worship him is by declaring. Verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He judges the people with iniquities. That word saying there in in Psalms is the word declaring. We're to declare that the Lord reigns. What does that mean? It means that the Lord rules over all. That we can have peace in the midst of economic downtimes and world strife and political um, just debauchery. Because we don't look for the next president to save us. We don't look for the government of the United States to be our salvation. We don't look for the government, although we, part of being set aside, being holy, is doing good things for other people. And so we do believe that as a country, that if we are in a place where we can't help countries that are less fortunate, should we? Yes, we should. But we're not looking for, we don't look to the United States to establish world peace. We can't bring peace in the middle. We can't bring peace. We look to Christ. We declare that Christ reigns. We declare that Jesus reigns over all things. And, and did you notice how this declaring that the Lord reigns is, is, is directly um, connected to the fact that he is coming back to judge? He'll establish peace in the Middle East. He'll bring rest to our political unrestlessness, or restlessness, excuse me, in our country. He'll bring peace to the restlessness of our hearts and of our lives. I love, there's a few songs that we've been singing lately that talk about how uh, that our faith one day will be sight. We sung a song this morning that talked about how it'll be made clear. The thing that our faith just tries to grasp for, one day will be made clear. When Christ comes back, our faith will be sight. But the Lord reigns. He says that he will judge the peoples uh, equally. We can rely on Jesus' justness when he judges. The third thing in verse 13, we are to believe. Worship is believing. It is ascribing to God. It is declaring God's goodness, you see the difference between ascribing and declaring, right? Ascribing is, is, is giving authorship to and power to and authority to. And declaring is in taking what we've ascribed to God and making it known to others. There's a difference. And then, of course, we're to believe. Verse 13 says, before the Lord, he, for he comes. Well, let's, let's read the end of verse 12. It says, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And we should all say amen that that does not read that he will judge the faithful people. But he will judge the people in his faithfulness. You see, Jesus was perfectly faithful. And because of that, we can have assurance when Jesus comes to judge. But we're to believe. Do you realize that you will have to give an account for how you respond to God's instructions? Honestly, like that's real. It's the part we don't want to focus on. But the reality is, is every time the church as a whole focuses on this part, we have, we experience revival. There's a very real sense that focusing on the coming judgment of Christ 
it, it gets our hearts where they need to be, where we seek his presence and we seek his forgiveness and we seek his righteousness because we realize that we fall so short. But the truth is, is that every person is going to have to give an account. God will stand and judge on how you respond to his instructions. Do you receive his instructions or do you receive God's law as his good instructions? And do you rightly respond by worshiping him because of it? Do you believe that he is coming back? Like church, this is one of the, aside from the, 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 the death and resurrection of Christ, Christ's return should be our greatest hope. It should be the banner that we wave and we declare that Christ is coming back. Things will not always be this way. The hurt that you experience, maybe even the hurt that you have caused, God will undo and make right. Now lastly, the fourth thing that we see here is that we're to sing. This is how he starts the psalm, and there's a reason that I, I went in order, and now I'm coming back to sing at last. But look at verse 1 and 2 with me. He opens this by singing, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. Now, there's a very real truth that because the book of Psalms are songs, that this entire song, psalm was a song that we're to sing. I get that. But we can also draw truths from it. But look at what he says about how we are to sing. Let me first tell you that, that as a church, do you realize that there's a reason, a strategic reason to why we sing every week? Do you realize that pretty much every church, especially if it's Christian, that you've ever gone to has some sort of singing? Why is that? Is it just because somebody started it once and they liked it and everybody's just fallen in that tradition and done it? No, it's because singing, although singing is not the definition of worship, it is a form of worship. And that's why you'll notice that even on our Sunday mornings when we gather, that we're very careful in how we talk about singing. We don't say we're going to pray and then we're going to worship. No, we say we're going to pray and then we're going to sing songs of worship or we'll worship in singing because worship is a, or singing is a form of worship. But he says sing new songs. Why new songs? Because God is alive and he is doing new things every day. He's doing new things every day. We're to sing songs that bless it says in verse 1. The word bless is an act of kneeling. It portrays this picture of, of kneeling before God as an act of adoration. It's not just kneeling in submission, but it's kneeling in humility and adoration towards God. We're to sing songs of salvation, songs that tell of what God has done for us. We're to declare His glory, it tells us in verse 2. His glory is, is what? It's God's Holiness made manifest among us. We're to sing that God is different and that we know God is different because God lived among us differently than any of us have ever lived. And it says we're to tell of his marvelous works among the people. This means that we're to sing old songs as well. You see, we don't just sing new songs and we don't just sing old songs. We're to sing new and old songs. We're to recall the marvelous works that God has done in the past. And the songs that represent that. We're to sing new songs for the things that God is doing new and today and fresh among us. And now briefly, I have just a couple of minutes. I want to talk to us now specifically as a, as a local church. 
You see, music is the number one reason, uh, is one of the top, it's not the number one reason, excuse me, is one of the top reasons people come to churches and leave churches. We've experienced it. Other churches in town experience it. There are churches who, who realize this, and so they begin to market themselves solely on their, their, their band. We should have good music in the church. We should strive to have good music in the church. It's a good thing. But the songs we sing, we are careful to choose. If you've noticed, there are songs that we don't <laughs> sing at Cross Point, and there's reasons behind it. It's not just because I don't like them. But one, we don't sing songs that are heavy on our ability to follow God. Did you see in all of this psalm, did you ever see King David telling the people to sing about how great they are being faithful to God? Did you see that? We went through all, every verse. Nowhere in the Psalms did we see how we're to sing songs about how amazing Christians we are and how we've abandoned everything and followed God. Because God's going to judge us in His faithfulness, not our faithfulness. We sing songs about God's faithfulness. I love how John MacArthur uh, describes certain worship songs. He calls them 7-Eleven songs. You know, the songs that have seven words that you sing 11 times. We don't do that. And a lot of churches, when you go to a lot of workshops and shops of how to grow big churches, they tell you, don't do wordy songs. Don't do songs people have to think about. And that is bull. That is, we, are not, we will never follow that. We'll die before we follow that path. We want to sing songs that make people think. We want to sing songs that remind us of who God is and what he has done and prepare our, our hearts to hear the word and prepare our hearts to repent. We sing songs that are heavy on Jesus being the hero. We sing songs that are heavy on God's character. We sing songs that remind us of what we need to know and the things we need to remember when the trials of life come. And you see, those are the things that we should get excited about. Those are the things that should cause us to spontaneously clap at God's greatness and His goodness. Don't get excited about how good of a Christian you are and how great you are at following him. Now, should we declare our allegiance to Jesus? Yes. Should we declare our intent to follow him? Yes. But that's not what we make great among ourselves. That's not what we want to make known. We want to make God's... Listen, if we make known God's goodness and what he has done, people are going to catch on that we're committed to following him. But if we only sing songs, listen, we have had, in, in the course of planning three churches now, uh, I have seen, we have had people come into certain of these churches, and before the first song's over, they leave. Maybe something happens. I don't know. There's also times where we'll dedicate a baby, and family members will come, right? And so we strategically dedicate babies after the, the first set of songs. That's, that's part of what we do on purpose. Why? Because we know once the baby's dedicated, they're going to get up and leave. And so if we only sing songs that talk about how good of Christians we are, there has been no hope transferred to those people. They have learned nothing. But if we sing songs that tell of God's goodness and His power to save and His desire to save, and they leave before they hear God's word preached, then at least they have heard part of the gospel in the songs that we have sang. There is a reason. We don't sing songs that are about feelings. Although when we rightly understand who God is, what he has done, how he has changed us, our emotions will be moved. 
And it is good and it is right to express those emotions. I am so over this morning and I am sorry I went long. But I want you to know, Ben, go ahead and come up. I want us to know as a church that it is okay as we are singing songs to kneel before the Lord. It is okay to clap when we come to verses that talk about God's greatness and His goodness. It is okay to raise our hands. You guys realize, like, I don't know if you've noticed, like, there's two different types to raise your hands, right? You raise them up like this. It's like in surrender. Like you're surrendering to who God is. Or there's times where people raise their hands out like this. It's like, it's a time of acceptance. It's like time like, I, need to, I, want, I want to receive God's goodness, His restoration. It is good and right for us to respond in these ways in worship. But not because we want to feel some sort of ooey-gooey emotional ride. It's because God has moved our emotions to a place of affection and adoration because of who He is. And so we will continue to sing songs and preach messages that lift up who God is and what He has done and His power to save. And our hope and our prayer as leaders is that we will grow as a people to where we get excited when we hear about these things. And that our time together in corporate worship would mature as our hearts are, 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 as our hearts hold God in deeper adoration. Let's pray. If you'll stand with me, I'll pray. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you, God, that I don't have to rely on my perfect ability to preach or to preach at the perfect amount of time for people's hearts to be changed. So I pray, God, now as we move into singing, and I pray, God, that our response as men and women, God, that we would respond rightly to your instruction to have no other gods before you. God, that we would respond rightly to your instruction to love you with our entire heart, soul, mind, body, and spirit. And I pray, God, that your spirit would move our hearts to gratitude and adoration and affection for you, God. That when we sing songs that lift you up, when we sing songs that make you big, God, that the emotions that you gave us would be stirred in affection for you. God, we don't want to be an emotional church, God, but we want to be a church that allows our emotions to be moved by you.